welcome to the History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to episode 19, No Land Beyond the Volga, part one. Now I'm going to start off this episode with a warning slash disclaimer here at the beginning, as we're going to get into one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. The Battle of Stalingrad has been described as quite possibly one of the worst battles in the history of warfare, which if you know anything about the history of warfare is saying something. In the thousands of years of recorded history, this battle, fought in the city of Stalingrad from August 23, 1942 to February 2, 1943, ranks right up there at the top. It's estimated that there were over 2 million casualties from this one battle alone, a casualty meaning killed, wounded, or captured. Completely needless to say, but this is a massive amount of pain and suffering meted out for such a short time. So the disclaimer slash warning is that in the story that I want to tell you, there might be some parts that might be a little hard to listen to. Don't worry, nothing will be overly or gratuitously graphic or anything like that, and I'll give warning where I think it's appropriate. Just want to say it at the outset. Also, I don't speak Russian or have much experience pronouncing Russian names, I'll do my best, but I'm relying on internet pronunciation guides and my best guess uh, quite a bit. This is a story that I've been wanting to tell for a very long time. A few years ago, I came across a book in a Barnes & Noble in Dallas that quickly grabbed my attention. It was a memoir entitled Notes of a Russian Sniper, and it was written by one Vasily Grigorovich Zaitsev, one of the most deadly snipers in the Battle of Stalingrad. I picked it up and thumbed through it, and the story sucked me right in. Now, for those of you out there who love war movies or like to swoon for Jude Law, you might recognize the name of Vasily Zaitsev. In 2001, Jude Law played him in the movie Enemy at the Gates, which was loosely based on Zaitsev's exploits while fighting in Stalingrad. I had enjoyed the movie, and now I had the rest of the story straight from Zaitsev himself. Something that I noticed right away was the amount of pro-Soviet Union and communist rhetoric in the book. Doing some digging, Zaitsev had been a member of the Communist Party and naturally wanted to make the party look good. So keep that in mind as we get moving. In history, as in everyday life, always check your sources and be aware of an author's bias, no matter where you read anything. Finally, as always, I want to give the people who lived through these times the opportunity to speak as often as I can. To that end, there will be a lot of quotations, most of them from Jonathan Bastable's book, Voices of Stalingrad. Mr. Bastable's work has been invaluable in putting together material for this episode, and I owe him many thanks. The quotations featured will, I hope, give you some context of the humanness of the suffering and trauma experienced in this months-long battle. In these quotations, both from Mr. Bastable's work and from Mr. Zaitsev's autobiography, you might hear a number of different nicknames for the combatants. For example, the British would call the Germans Jerry or Jerry's. The Germans would call the Soviets Ivans, Bolsheviks, or Reds, and would call the British Tommies. And the Soviets would call the Germans Fritz or Fascists. This happens in warfare all the time, and usually as a way to dehumanize the enemy. So just know that going in. Now with all that said, let's begin. But our story doesn't actually begin in 1942, or even in the city of Stalingrad for that matter, which sits comfortably between the Don and Volga rivers in southern Russia. 
It instead begins sometime earlier in the woods of the Ural Mountains in what is today the Chelyabinsk Oblast. Here a young boy is moving out of childhood and becoming a man. His grandfather, Andrei Alexevich Zaitsev, is with him, and young Vasily hears his words in his ears. Quote, Shoot with a steady aim, and look your prey in the eye. You are not a boy anymore. End quote. Andrei and his grandson, like so many other times in young Vasily's life, are out hunting. The master and the student. Andrei's grandson is like a sponge, soaking up lesson after lesson on how to move, how to track, how to not be seen, how to lie still, and how to camouflage. These are lessons that Vasily Zaitsev would take with him into adulthood and use to great effect, but those days are far, far away. In 1927, Andrei presented 12-year-old Vasily with his own single-shot 20-gauge shotgun, but the lessons didn't stop with the presentation of the weapon. Vasily was taught to listen, to be silent, and to make sure that he didn't brag about his success. Instead, he was supposed to let his actions speak for him. Vasily's father imparted wisdom of his own. A veteran of World War I, or the Great War as it was then called, told him, quote, Use every bullet wisely, Vasily. Learn to shoot and never miss. This will help you, and not just when you are hunting four-legged beasts, end quote. But hunting four-legged beasts was part of life in the Ural Mountains. Zaitsev was a hunter, even at a young age, and his family expected nothing less. Tracking prey and being tracked by other predators was commonplace, and Vasily had to sharpen his skills in order to survive on his own and to provide for his family. Fast forward to 1937, when Vasily was drafted into the Soviet Navy's Pacific Fleet. Stationed in Vladivostok, near the borders of China, Japan, and North Korea, Zaitsev adjusted to life in the military. He was especially proud of his naval uniform, or Telnyashka, and its blue and white stripes. In his autobiography, Zaitsev states, quote, A sailor in his Telnyashka stands out from afar. You can't lose sight of him, not in stormy seas or in a crowd of people. The blue and white lines seem to come alive and move as if the sailor is wearing the ocean on his chest. Of course, a uniform shirt is merely external, just an object. But just try one on. Suddenly you want to straighten up and throw back your shoulders. And unless you're a pansy or some sickly specimen, you immediately feel the urge to test your strength, to do a couple of push-ups or a few bench presses. And so it starts to have an effect on you. And it is not for nothing that people say that men in Telnyashka show no fear, spit in the face of death, and never ask the enemy for mercy. End quote. I imagine the feeling of pride was great, coming from this 22-year-old hunter, construction worker, and former accountant, as he was inducted into this military community, shaved military haircuts and all. But while Zaitsev was getting settled into life in the Navy, trouble was brewing back in the West. The Great Depression continued to hold tightly to most of the world, while the Spanish Civil War was unknowingly acting as a practice warm-up for the Second World War. Adolf Hitler had been in charge of Germany for four years, cementing his power and influence over that destitute populace. Bloody purges and government roundups of political opponents, like the Night of the Long Knives in 1934, helped consolidate Hitler's position. In 1936, the German Rhineland, the territory between Germany and Belgium, 
was remilitarized in direct violation of the Treaty of Versailles, which had ended World War I. No one seemed particularly interested in trying to put a stop to Hitler's plans for the Rhineland, so, sensing an opportunity, Hitler pushed the envelope again by requesting, slash demanding, the Sudetenland be taken from Czechoslovakia and returned to Germany. British, French, and Italian leaders were again unwilling to stop this German aggression and allowed the annexation on the promise that Germany wouldn't make any more territorial demands in Europe. Now, at this point, it's easy to look back with hindsight and lay the blame for the coming conflict on the British and French leaders for giving in to the monster leader of Germany. After all, Mr. Hitler did make a promise and all that. Because, you know, he'll keep his promise? But something to keep in mind any time that you study the beginnings of the Second World War is that the people in charge lived through the horrors of the first one. As we stated in the first Tolkien episode, the First World War saw the advent of modern weapons and the effectiveness of their killing power. Mustard and chlorine gas attacks undoubtedly plagued the nightmares of survivors, as well as the percussive blasts of incessant artillery fire. Machine guns cut down soldiers like wheat, and grenades tossed into, tr into trenches left soldiers in pieces. There are miles and miles of French soil that are cordoned off even today, 100 years after World War I, because of the danger of unexploded World War I-era artillery shells. All of these things combined to produce never-before-seen numbers of astronomical casualties. As we said, casualties are the number of killed, wounded, or missing in warfare, and both sides suffered greatly. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, France by itself suffered around 6 million casualties, while the British suffered around 3 million casualties, and Italy around 2 million. Now, 21 short years later, Germany was making noise again, and no one wanted to risk that amount of death and devastation again. Now, I'm not saying that Czechoslovakia's dissection was right. Czechoslovakia didn't even have a representative in Munich for these talks. Britain, France, and Italy's decision for, quote, quote, peace in our time has the ring of a desperate set of leaders trying not to repeat history. The peace in our time anthem was a short one, however as less than a year later, Hitler sent his panzers into Poland from the west on September 1, 1939, kicking off the Second World War. Sixteen days later, acting according to a secret agreement with Hitler, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin sent troops from the Soviet Union to invade Poland from the east. Poland was split in half, Germans in the west, Soviets in the east. Belgium and Norway fell in 1940, followed by the Netherlands and Luxembourg, Finally, a weakened France fell when Paris was captured by Nazi forces on June 14, 1940. Everything was looking good for the Axis powers as the calendar turned over to 1941. They controlled the majority of Europe between them, while the Battle of Britain raged over the skies of London and southern England. The United States was not yet involved openly with the war, though Franklin Delano Roosevelt was doing everything he could to give aid to the Allies. Then June 1941 rolled around, and in the words of Vicini from The Princess Bride, Hitler fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is, never get involved in a land war in Asia. On June 22, 1941, Germany launched Operation Barbarossa and invaded the Soviet Union. Now, this invasion and trickery shouldn't have surprised anyone. Hitler himself told everyone that he was going to do it. 
In his autobiography slash ideological treatise, Hitler talks about his idea of Drang nach Osten, or the drive to the east. In 1945, Hitler is supposed to have said, quote, It is eastward, only and always eastward, that the veins of our race must expand. It is the direction in which nature herself has decreed for the expansion of the German peoples. End quote. War with the Soviets, it seems, was an inevitability. Now, there was at least one good reason that I can find for this invasion. The Germans were gunning for the oil-rich Caucasus region around the Black and Caspian Seas, the area where our old friend Mithridates VI used to hang out. The Germans also had a plan to use conquered Soviets as slave labor to assist with the German war effort. As we move on, we'll touch on the numerous downsides of Operation Barbarossa. In the beginning, things seemed to go well at the start. The city of Leningrad, now St. Petersburg in the north, was put under siege by German Army Group North on September 8th, and German Army Group Center was within sight of Moscow by September 30th. Army Group South was headed to the Volga River in the Caucasus region. Joseph Stalin was stunned by the invasion. The Soviet leader disappeared for a few days, but returned to call his people to action. Everything that could be useful to the advancing German army was to be destroyed if it could not be moved. Guerrilla units were to harry the enemy's every step, and useful bridges and roads were to be destroyed. Autumn turned to winter, and the Germans found out just how brutal Russian winters could be. Their supply lines were stretched thin, a victim of their own success in a way, and the troops fought in their summer uniforms, thoroughly unprepared for the cruel winter that was coming. The German forces survived the winter, however, and readied themselves for Case Blue, the official plan for the Caucasus region, which was to begin in the summer of 1942. Then Hitler intervened. He split Army Group South into two groups, A and B. Group A was to continue south as planned, but Group B was sent east to the industrial city of Stalingrad, on the Volga River. Stalin declared martial law in the city that bore his name, and on July 28th he issued Order Number 227, also known as Not One Step Back. It's a bit long, but here's a part of it. Quote, the population of our country, who love and respect the Red Army, start to be discouraged in her and lose faith in the Red Army, and many curse the Red Army for leaving our people under the yoke of the German oppressors and itself running east. Some stupid people at the front calm themselves with talk that we can retreat further to the east, as we have a lot of territory, a lot of ground, and a lot of population, and that there will always be much bread for us. They want to justify the infamous behavior at the front, but such talk is a falsehood, helpful only to our enemies. Each commander, Red Army soldier, and political commissar should understand that our means are not limitless. The territory of the Soviet state is not a desert, but a people. Workers, peasants, intelligentsia, our fathers, mothers, wives, brothers, children. The territory of the USSR, which the enemy has captured and aims to capture, is bread and other products for the army, metal and fuel for industry, factories and plants supplying the army with arms and ammunition, railways. After the loss of Ukraine, Belarus, Baltic Republics, Donzik, and other areas, we have much less territory, much less people, bread, metal, plants, and factories. We have lost more than 70 million people, more than 800 million pounds of bread annually, 
and more than 10 million tons of metal annually. Now we do not have predominance over the Germans in human reserves and reserves of bread. To retreat further means to waste ourselves and to waste at the same time our motherland. Therefore, it is necessary to eliminate talk that we have the capability endlessly to retreat, that we have a lot of territory, that our ter country is great and rich, that there is a large population and that bread always will be abundant. Such talk is false and parasitic. It weakens us and benefits the enemy. If we do not stop retreating, we will be without bread, without fuel, without metal, without raw material, without factories and plants, without railways. This leads to the conclusion, it is time to finish retreating, not one step back. Such should now be our main slogan. End quote. Now that was long, but you can almost hear a little bit of desperation in that announcement, can't you? So what did not one step back mean? Well, if you played the very first Call of Duty video game back in 2003, you probably experienced it. In the second mission of the Soviet part of the campaign, you, the player, are in Stalingrad and are tasked with defending the central square while pushing the German forces back. I was playing, ran out of ammo, and figured that I would run back to my friendly companions to get some more. I retreated backwards a few steps and my character got lit up by a machine gun. Okay, I thought. I'll try that again. Guess I didn't see the baddie that got me. Next try, same thing happened and again the same result. Third try, same thing. Finally, in way too many tries than I want to admit, I realized that I was getting lit up by my own Russian forces. They were shooting me. I had just experienced a simulated not one step back directive. In real life, anyone who deserted the Red Army was shot. Anyone who retreated without authorization was shot. If your group was suspected of attempting to withdraw, special squads were placed behind yours to shoot you if you tried to escape. Dissent was punishable by a court-martial. In his book, Voices from Stalingrad, author John Bastable states, quote, Any officer or soldier guilty of a disciplinary offense would be sent to a strafbot, a penal battalion. These units were used for suicidal tasks such as attacking across minefields. The only way out of such a unit was to be wounded, that is, to atone with blood for crimes against the motherland. The strafbot was, in other words, nearly always a death sentence. End quote. On August 23, 1942, the Battle of Stalingrad began. The German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, bombed Stalingrad into oblivion to start the things off. The half million or so civilians had been forbidden to evacuate the city, as Stalin reasoned that the Red Army would fight the invading Nazi forces even harder if they were fighting for a living town. Thousands died as a result. Luftwaffe bombs didn't care if the target was military or civilian. And Jonathan Bastable recounts the story of a woman named Larissa Ladnaya, who was in Stalingrad when the bombs hit. She and her family had hidden in a railway tunnel to escape the bombing. She says, quote, There was nothing to eat. We would run to the burning grain elevator and get some scorched wheat. Shells were bursting all around, but we had to try and get something to feed the wounded and the little children, who were crying and asking for food. Since I was older, they all turned to me for help. We could only prepare food and bring water at night. It was impossible to leave the hiding place in daylight. 
A friend of mine was killed with her entire family when her apartment block took a direct hit. Many of the girls in my class were killed too. The city had many wooded buildings which burned easily. The oil tanks made a terrifying fire. Everything was bathed in the glow of the fires. The whole city was covered in smoke and ash. Wooden houses burned, factories burned, the jetties burned. The cannery at Yelshanka burned. We ran there and tried to bring back tins of food, but they had all exploded in the heat. We came back with very little. My mother would burst into tears whenever she looked at us. A thick strand of my younger sister's hair turned gray. End quote. There is also the story of a mother named Elizaveta Krakova, who was trying to get to safety on the other side of the Volga River but was caught in the bombing. She remembers, quote, I dressed my son warmly. He had only just learned to walk. I packed five kilos of wheat and also my mincer so that I would be able to make food along the way. That is all I took with me. I had only my own back and my own hands to rely on. I saw a tractor with a trailer coming toward us. I ran into the road and lifted my baby to the tractor driver, trying to explain with gestures that we needed to get to the Volga. He understood, stopped the tractor, and helped me get into the trailer with the baby. There was another woman with a baby sitting in the cabin of the tractor. As I clambered up into the trailer, I saw that it was full of artillery shells, and on we went. But to my horror, we got caught up in a bombing raid. The tractor stopped, and we all hid in a nearby ditch. I lay on top of my child. I was so scared. All it would have taken was one bomb fragment to hit the trailer, and we would have all been blown sky high. We couldn't crawl any further away from the tractor at that moment. And when we eventually crawled out, we could not believe that the storm had passed over us, for now at least. I climbed back into the trailer on the tractor, and we carried on. End quote. Think about those two accounts for just a second. These are both within the first few days of the German Air Force flying overhead. The Wehrmacht is on its way, and the city of Stalin is already in ruins, with the factory districts ablaze and the expensive new architecture lying in rubble. About a month after the battle started, our friend Vasily Zaitsev will arrive in the city. His request to be sent to the front lines was finally granted, and he traded his navy uniform for the uniform of a soldier in the 1047th Rifle Regiment of the Red Army. He had been on a train across the Soviet Union and seen firsthand something the Germans were learning the hard way. Russia is a massively big and vast country. It's one of the main reasons to not get into a land war in Asia, like Vicini said in The Princess Bride. There's just so much open land out there. Distance from supply lines was a major issue for the advancing German army and would continue to be an issue as fall turned to winter. One of the other issues the Wehrmacht faced were the people of Stalingrad themselves. Nazi ideology was centered on racist views of the superiority of the German people and the inferiority of everyone else. The Soviets, it turned out, were not the Untermenschen, or subhumans, that the fanatical Nazis believed. One account of the monstrous behavior that this racist Nazi ideology encouraged comes from a nurse named Alexandra Barova, who was working to tend to wounded soldiers in the town of Aksai, 50 miles south of Stalingrad. As told by Mr. Bastable, she states, quote, I remember an occasion when I was told there were wounded civilians inside the school in Aksai. Raisa Shestakova and I went out to help. 
Watching Risa bandage the injured women and children, it was obvious that her attentions were giving them new hope. Risa and I worked through the night. Every last wounded civilian was given the help they needed. The following morning, our battalion had to fall back temporarily towards Abganerovo. When we returned the next day, we were greeted by a terrible sight. The Germans had taken savage reprisals against the wounded civilians whom Risa and I had tended during the night. They had all been shot, except for the Komsomol and party members who had been hung from the trees in front of the school. That is a sight I will never forget. End quote. This was a different kind of war. This kind of treatment was, sadly, far too common in places the German Wehrmacht passed through. Numerous war crimes were committed against civilians by the army itself, as well as its more sadistic branches, like the Einsatzgruppen and death squads. In places, Soviet prisoners of war were treated much worse than English or American POWs were. Unfortunately for the Germans, the Soviets could and would hit back hard. When German troops marched into Stalingrad, they were met with desperate opposition from the remaining civilians who either could not or chose not to leave the city. Consider the account of Fyodor Yerofeyev, who was transformed from a factory worker into a soldier by the advancing Wehrmacht soldiers. Mr. Yerofeyev was working in one of the many factories that dotted the Stalingrad cityscape when the bombs hit. He says, quote, We spent an agonizing night taking cover in the shop's oil tanks, in total darkness. When dawn came, the barrage of our anti-aircraft air artillery subsided, and by morning we were able to leave the plant. The Germans were firing on the workers from the hill above Spartanovka. Me and my senior foreman, Pyotr Smolkov, got out through the garden. Once outside, I heard people saying that the Germans had already taken Spartanovka. My heart stopped as that was where my house was and my family too. Not to mention all my documents, my military card, my passport, and my card exempting me from military service. But I still decided to find out what happened in person, since it was only two kilometers to the village. I got to the lower end of the village and turned onto the concrete bridge where our militia were manning an observation post. They told me that I could go across, so I sprinted across the cement bridge and went to my house, where I found my 89-year-old grandmother and her daughter-in-law. I dug a slit trench to hide from the bombing, grabbed my documents, and went straight to the commissariat. I presented my documents and asked to be enlisted in an active army unit so I could defend my plant, which nurtured me ever since I was a pupil at the works school. End quote. Three days later, Mr. Yerofeyev was in command of a ragtag unit of civilian soldiers. Fortunately, many civilians in Stalingrad were able to escape across the Volga River to relative safety. Our friend Vasily Zaitsev met some of them on his way into the city while trying to hide from German Luftwaffe air patrols. Zaitsev writes, quote, We turned off the road and marched along some cattle trails in the forest. Suddenly people in civilian clothes, old men, women, and children, appeared from the bushes. They could barely walk and they were bandaged and covered in dust. There were wounded civilians from Stalingrad trying to reach a hospital. We sailors, who hadn't yet seen the horrors of war, looked on in distress, and at the edge of the forest, where we concealed ourselves, we could see Stalingrad. The Volga lay between us and the city. We could hear artillery fire and the rattle of machine guns. German aircraft, much closer now than those we had seen before, 
were relentlessly bombing the factory district. Wounded soldiers were led past us. We wanted to ask them about the battle, but their appearance spoke for itself. They walked like zombies, moaning and groaning, their columns led by a nurse or a medic. End quote. And that's where we will leave Vasily Zaitsev and the citizens of Stalingrad for this episode. Don't worry, there will be plenty of action and adventure in the next episode as we follow Zaitsev and his comrades into the city. If you have any questions, concerns, or comments, cries of outrage, or declarations of independence, you can send them my way by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, by going on Facebook or Instagram and searching History on the Side, or by checking out www.historyontheside.com. Now two more things before we go. First, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has been listening to this podcast and has shared it with your, their friends and family. This episode actually marks the beginning of the second year for History on the Side, and I'm so thankful for this little passion project, as my wife calls it. So special thanks to my wonderful wife and daughter for their support, as well as all of you wonderful listeners. Second, times have been tough for the past few months. In case you're listening to this episode in the far-flung future, COVID-19 has changed a lot of the things about the world we live in. But in spite of this, taking care of yourself is still as important as it has ever been. That includes the obvious physical side of things, but also the hidden and not as talked about mental side of things. So if you find yourself stressed, worried, anxious, just not in a good place mentally, or if you just need someone to talk to in order to get thoughts out of your head, please reach out to someone and get help. It can be for big things or little things, life-changing or mundane. I'm here to tell you, as a human who goes to counseling, it does not make you weak. It does not mean you're not strong. If that's you, let me encourage you to reach out and get help. Let's get rid of the stigma and instead normalize asking for and seeking help. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time with No Land Beyond the Volga, Part 2.